This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Friday, 9th of February. With me today, I have Zeke Fox. Zeke is a leading investigative reporter with Bloomberg. Last year, Zeke published one of my favourite books of 23, Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. The book is now up for many awards for this year, including Best True Crime. Zeke, welcome. Thanks a lot, Nick. I look love to see you. I truly loved your book. It's a real tale of modern pirates, but without the regulation, I feel. Um, but before we get on to that, I'd love a little bit of background on you, your career, and I guess what interested you in following the crypto story. So I've been a reporter at Bloomberg for more than a decade. And when I started out, I actually, my beat was equity derivatives. And yeah. it, the stories were not quite as exciting. Um, but I always gravitated towards people who are working on the edge of finance, the in the gray areas, people who worked in boiler rooms or yep. ran penny stock schemes. So that's a or, wolf of Wall Street. Yes, yes. And I actually, one of the first stories I did that was kind of fun on that topic was I sort of looked at where are those wolf of Wall Street guys now? And the answer was that this has kind of always been true, but it's... Um, Quite, they're actually centered in New York's financial district. So the tourists are walking around looking at the stock exchange, looking at uh, the 40 Wall Street, the Trump building. Yeah. And, 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 the big, and the big bull. And the big, yeah. And they're thinking, you know, this is the most legit, you know, financial part of, of New York. But it turns out a lot of those buildings are kind of old and run down. And if you're going to have a boiler room, that's where it is. And so I spoke with Tons of people who worked at different sketchy brokerages, people who had whose careers dated back to the Stratton Oakmont days yes. with you know yeah. at Jordan Belfort. Yeah. And now they're kind of falling on hard times because um if you it was it's, it's simple, but back in the day when when the Wolf of Wall Street was was going on, like the early nineties, people didn't have the internet. So if someone called you and said they had a hot stock tip, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Prob uh, most people sense. probably hung up, but people were a little more curious because there's no way to easily find out about these hot yeah. stock tips. Um, so and and, you, and everyone loves and everyone loves a hot stock tip. Yeah, and uh, you, you, these guys love to say, "Hey, listen, listen, bro, I'm looking out my window at the stock exchange right now," and I, it was great. I got um, 
these guys, I got some of their scripts and they hadn't updated them either. It, it would be like, if customer says wife advises against purchase, <laughs> tell, tell wife you'll get her a fur coat with the profits. Like, <laughs> how funny, um, how funny. So this turned into um, a great area of stories for me. And I would just sort of ask these guys, hey, what are your friends up to? Where are people getting jobs now? What's the hot area? It led me to something called Merchant Cash Advance, which is essentially payday loans for small businesses. Yeah. It's totally unregulated. It's this great area. And these guys who had used to sell stocks would tell me it's so much easier because you call a business owner. You don't say, hey, I got a great stock tip for you. You're like, hey, do you need 50 grand? I'll send it to you right now. Yeah. And that is a easy sell. And it was paying huge commissions, 10, 20%. Um, because they really rip off the merchants on the interest rate and the fees. So, yeah. and so my thing be kind of became that I would write about these gray areas, but not just as a straight up investigator, you know, saying, "Hey, Congress, you should change the law about this." I would more find the people who are making lots of money, pushing the limits, and get to know them and write profiles of them. And this was, I find these people fascinating because I'm somebody who always plays by the rules. But if you yeah. are willing to break the rules, to take a little risk, there's it opens up the world to you and there's so many more possibilities. Like if you definitely don't want to get sued by the SEC, you have to be very careful. But if you are okay with maybe getting sued by the SEC, there's like a lot of stuff you could do. And a lot of times the worst thing that's going to happen to you is you just lose the money that you made on the scam anyway. So yeah. um, so for years, this became kind of uh, a specialty of mine. And when crypto came along, a lot of people said, you should investigate these crypto guys. This could be a good area for you. But I was a bit hesitant. I, for a couple of reasons. One is I really like breaking down how like a loophole works. I like to figure out what is the scheme? How do they think they're going to get away with it? How is it maybe not actually legal, even though they're claiming it is? Um, and I, I love reading, believe it or not, like prospectuses for penny stocks or yeah. contracts for payday loans and trying to spot interesting things in them. And with crypto, just as an ignorant outsider, what I saw was a bunch of guys saying, hey, buy my Ripple coin, it's so cool. And then people would buy the Ripple coin and it would go up. And there was not, um, there, there was not, there weren't like detailed claims that I could unpack. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, um, if somebody is just saying, hey, I've got something and it's going to be great, then there's nothing like going on for me to investigate. Like it's better for me if you're saying, hey, I've got this thing that's happening right now and it's already great. Then I can go talk to people who did the thing, see if it's really great. But if you're just saying, 
hey, like all this pie in the sky, like, oh, my coin one day will be the future of money. That becomes more of like a theoretical argument. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't really think it was it was my thing. Um, so at, during the first crypto bubble, I didn't write very much about it. I didn't really get into it uh, so back when, in 2017. When, when 2017, 2017, okay, yeah. And then um, pandemic rolls around, crypto really gets going, and yeah. I'm starting to hear about it from regular people, civilians, my neighbors, yeah. yes, my my friends, um, and they're, I mean, they're they're not lying. They're like, I've made a lot of money on this. I mean, even you, you mentioned a friend, wasn't it? Yes. So. There was this one, and I'm on a group chat with some buddies from high school. And, you know, it's awesome. We've stayed in touch for like 20 years now. And we talk about, uh, you know, our lives, like funny things that happened that day, it's funny stuff we saw on the internet. And one of my, my, one of my best friends, Jay, he started talking a lot about this new thing that he called doggy coin. Yeah. And I told him, hey, this is called Dogecoin and it's really dumb. Do not yeah. get involved with this. And Jay was like, Zeke, I totally know it's dumb, but I can tell from looking at Reddit, looking at, you know, Twitter, people, it's bubbling up. Dogecoin is getting hot and it's only trading for a penny right now. And not for any good reason, but I just think the buzz is there. It's going to go to 10 cents. I'm going to make a lot of money. You should get in on it. Yeah. And I, I guess as a, someone who in, writes about financial markets, investigates them, I like to think that I know something about this. And I was saying, hey, first off, okay, yeah, in the long run, this has to go to zero if it doesn't do anything. Like mm -hmm. the value of an investment has to be based on some kind of use or uh, some sort of profitable business. And second, this is actually kind of an old coin. It's been around for years. I don't even think the joke was that funny to begin with, but it already kind of had its run um, back in, I think, four or five years earlier. Mm -hmm. It had yeah. been made fun of on late night shows yes. years ago. So... But Jay bought the coins and he kept uh, sending good news about additional attention that Dogecoin was getting. And eventually he sold out. He made a very good profit and he went on a trip to Disney World and he sent some pictures from the Disney trip <laughs> and he sent us a message saying, I am freaking Nostradamus. If you'd listen to my advice, you'd all be, you know, $5,000 richer right now. Yeah. And I was a little jealous. I mean, I would have liked to have the $5,000, but also I just wanted to be right. I wanted to win the argument. It kind of got to me that Jay was right that that Dogecoin was going to go up and it, it wasn't just him, you know, there are a lot of people who were doing yeah. things that I thought were like pretty ill-advised and were making money. And I thought, you know, maybe I should look into why all these, what's going on here? Why are all these coins going up and up and up? And, you know, 
not just making thousands of dollars for my neighbors, but making billions of dollars for the guys who are inventing them and for the venture capitalists that are that are backing them. Um, so I be that is what made me more open to crypto as a as a topic. And then how did how did you start with to write uh, number go up? And let's let's actually let's why don't, why don't we start with why why you called the book number go up? So I in this new mood of pretty interested in crypto my editor at business week joel weber came by my desk one day and said have you ever thought about stable coins and there was this one very interesting stable coin called tether mm-hmm. and this is it's a currency that cryptocurrency that does not go up and up and up it's always worth a dollar because it's backed by real dollars in the bank. So the, allegedly, allegedly so. Yes. And so the idea is that you send Tether $100, they send you 100 Tether tokens, you can go play with those in crypto land, take them to the exchange or whatever, and Tether takes your $100, puts it in the bank somewhere. And if you ever want to trade your tokens back, you can get your $100 back. So when I started looking into this, Heather had sold more than 50 billion tokens. So that meant, yeah, they were supposed to have 50 billion in the bank somewhere and they weren't saying where. And just like pretty casual research showed a laughable amount of red flags. Like the type of stuff that would... uh, it would never fly on on Wall Street. The company, it wasn't clear where it was, like what country it was in. The company had alluded to being regulated in the British Virgin Islands, but I checked with the regulator there and they were like, no. Um, the CEO and the CFO never spoke at conferences. The CEO was so little seen that at the time, some people suspected that he didn't really exist. And there were a lot of people who were saying like, maybe they don't really have this money. Maybe they yep. didn't sell 50 billion tokens. Maybe this is like the big scam at the center of the whole crypto world. So I thought this seems a good, as good a place to start as any. This seems like a pretty interesting story. And so luckily, right when I was starting to investigate, um, there was a big conference planned called... Bitcoin 2021, and it was in Miami, and it was one of the first gatherings of any type uh, after uh, pandemic restrictions started loosening up. So everybody who was anybody in crypto was going to be there, and I thought, all right, I'll fly down there, and I'll ask them about about Tether, because a lot of times there could be something that is not in the news, but that people in the industry basically know about. So it could be that if I talk to the, you know, some crypto billionaires, they'll be like, let me tell you how it is. And I uh, will could get to the bottom of it somewhat easily. And when I'm going there, I'm pretty skeptical of crypto. But I'm also thinking, just like today, crypto does a great job at this. There's always this narrative that mainstream adoption is just around the corner. There's all sorts of Wall Street guys 
who are coming up with all sorts of ways that real good uses for crypto that are going to revolutionize capital markets. And there's all sorts of legit and cool apps that are be being created in crypto. And so even though I was skeptical in crypto, I had that narrative in the back yeah. of my mind. Um, so I, I get to the conference, though, and what I see is like insane. It's like a religious revival. And people are talking about how Bitcoin is going to save the world. Sometimes people literally are moved to tears just thinking about how great Bitcoin is. And this is where I got the title because there was a guy on stage who was talking about uh, about Bitcoin. And one of the questions I had that I keep asking everybody throughout the book is just like, what is this good for? Mm -hmm. And he gave his version and he said, the point of Bitcoin is number go up. And Bitcoin is number go up technology. And what does that mean? Well, the price of Bitcoin will go up and that gets people excited. So they buy Bitcoin. Then the price will go up more, which gets people more excited. Yeah. And until it goes to the moon. And everybody's just like clapping, you know, like all hail the Bitcoin genius. What a what a great idea. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, this sounds like a Ponzi scheme. What's wrong with you people? This will never work. Or some massive scam. Yeah. And then you might read the book and be like, did Zeke cherry pick all the worst guys in crypto? Yeah. I, I get a feeling there were probably even worse guys that you didn't write about rather than yeah. the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I was just in Miami and I was like, let's arrange meetings with the biggest players in crypto because those people are most likely to know about what's going on with Tether. So I sat down with this uh, curly haired dude. He was wearing shorts and a T-shirt. He, he'd come to town from Hong Kong because he was renaming the Miami Heat basketball arena after his crypto exchange, FTX. And yeah, yeah this is Sam Bankman fried who's now become a little more famous. Exactly. And so we're just sitting there in the press room. It's a big, there's probably 10,000 people at this conference. They ran out of food. It was kind of a zoo. Um, but Sam was always very, he always had time for reporters. So he, uh, you know, he sat down with me and he was saying, yeah, like, Tether, it's a, it's a bit weird, but like for real, I sent them a lot of money to buy the Tether tokens. I use it in my business. Um, and But I started thinking about, about, but he also told me a little about his story. And he's like, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I was, I was interested in charity. I wanted to do good for the world. Then I decided a philosopher told me, wouldn't it be a good idea to get rich first so you could give it away? Yeah. And I was yeah. like, cool. And now I'm worth $20 billion. And I was like, wow, this guy sounds like I mean, a good story. I mean, do you think, do you think, I don't know, what I've read, I sort of feel that's actually true. But it's, it, did you get that sense from him that that was his sole focus, his sole wish? Yes. So I, I ended up spending a lot more time with him and interviewing a lot of his, uh, associates and then i also heard many of those same associates and sam testify at his criminal trial of course and, which, 
which I think, if I'm right, your book your book was mentioned in that trial as well. Yes, they during his cross examination, the prosecutor surprised Sam by pulling out a hard copy to point out something because he had admitted to some stuff to me in the book that he probably shouldn't have. Yeah. Um. But so Sam told me a lot of lies. But, Interesting. Uh. But I do believe that he was obsessed with effective altruism and that he really thought that, I mean, imagine if you really, really believed that there was some chance that you were going to change the course of human history. Like, that's how important he thought he was and what he was doing. He thought what he was doing was, like, a world historical level of importance. And so when he was faced with decisions like, should I... Uh, and he'd gotten so far by just yeah. taking risks, always doubling down, and not really paying much attention to the rules. So I think that made him, that led him down the path that he that he went. So I think he he was sincere in his belief that he was going to do something good for the world, and that led him to. Uh, he had this like skewed philosophy that led him to. Yeah, break a I, lot of rules is it a case that sam didn't actually think he was doing anything wrong within his own world well no like i think he knew he was doing stuff that was fraudulent however if uh so he was from an early age really believed in this philosophy of utilitarianism and yes. what that means is that every action should be judged on what's going to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And it, if you don't think about it too much, it doesn't sound controversial, but yeah. um, it leads you to some really, it can lead you to some crazy places. Like, of course, yeah. Let's, let's say I, I know five people who need different organ transplants. Should I kill you and harvest your organs so I can, yeah. I can give them away? Yeah. Maybe I should. should. Five people. Five people live and one dies. So, yeah. yeah. No, they have arguments against that. Just maintaining the social norms against murder is very valuable. Um, but now let's say I'm planning to... Uh, he Effective altruists originally, they had this idea that you could give away money to buy bed nets for people in Africa, and they it would reduce their odds of getting malaria. And basically, if you did the numbers for every... $5,000 of bed nets you gave away, you would likely save one person's life. So let's say Sam could make a billion dollars by breaking some Securities and Exchange Commission rules, and he was going to save, uh, what's, is that, is that 20,000 lives? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, like, like break the rules then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I okay. think that it's that kind of reasoning that led him to do what he did. Not, I don't think he was innocent and didn't understand he was breaking the rules. He was just like, it would actually be more wrong not to break the rules. Yes. Yeah. No, I get that. I can understand his philosophy. Or I can see where his philosophy would bring him to. And there's, a, there's an interesting book, part in your book where you talk about the venture capitalists who then wanted to come and invest in FTX and the lack of due diligence they had done and one sending them a term sheet 
where where Sam could just write in the number of the valuation of the business. I mean, I think they've got a lot to answer for, really. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. And they were the ones who, well, this gets, so I pick myself because I had a lot of access to Sam. I'm a professional investigative reporter. I've exposed other scams. I yeah. should have exposed this one. Well, I should have I should have caught him. Um, and now those guys really should have caught him because yeah. they could have asked him for financial records. I mean, they, they could had have leverage. For, you're right. They could have asked for a balance sheet for starters. The fact that they were willing to put in billions of dollars without doing basic due diligence, I, I think question should question them. And, and they were big names as well. Yeah. Um, I think, well, this was one of the underlying questions that I kept exploring in the book, which was, or one of the things that really su continually surprised me. So I thought, you know, there was one part of crypto that was like my friend Jay betting on Dogecoin and then going to Disney World. And I thought there was sort of this other side where people were doing much smarter things. Yeah. And, um, but I think the two sides had more in common than 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 I had originally thought. And so these venture capitalists, they were like, okay, crypto, I don't know, is it any good? Well, it seems like people are buying it. And like, if we don't buy it, what if our friends get, you know, yeah. huge returns? And yeah. they're like, if if we get, maybe, I don't know what's with this Sam Bigfoot Freed, but if if we invest at 10 billion, I bet it's going to go to 100 billion because I can tell that people are going to be hot for it soon. So like, so it's, a it's all classic, FOMO. Yeah, you that say a classic FOMO trade. Greed, yes. greed and fear of missing out. And Sam, he had this great way of presenting himself, which was that he was not buying into the crypto hype. He was, he, so... We actually, we had a, we had an interesting conversation one of the first times we talked because um, one thing that had been on my mind for years is that I'd met a lot of people who'd made lots of money, more than I'll ever see in my life, and who were not necessarily that happy about it. Like they had $10 million, $100 million, but it left them, maybe they were bored and they just, mm -hmm. they hadn't found like the meaning in their life. And I had, sometimes I would suggest to them, have you considered, you know, giving your money to charity or, you know, taking on some ambitious, like charitable project that might be fun and something you could be proud of. And uh, people are always like, no, nah, I might be bored, but I'm just going to buy a bigger mansion and yeah. hope for the best. Um, but so when I, when Sam explained his philosophy to me, I, I immediately was like, oh, th this sounds pretty cool. And I... I said this to him. I was like, Sam, all right, I, you know, love where you're going with this effective altruism stuff, but um, you're not giving very much to charity right now because your money's all tied up in in equity. How about this? You have so much credibility in crypto. You could run like some sort of, you know, create like Sam coin. You probably get, in my mind, I was thinking maybe you get like four or five billion dollars. Like it didn't seem, it seemed plausible. And then you could steal it all, give that money to charity right now. Yeah. Wouldn't that be yeah. better? Yeah. And 
Sam was like, he wasn't like, thou shalt not steal. He was just like, uh, he was like, Zeke, you know, interesting idea, but you can make more money in the long run running an honest business. I've got this exchange. I'm not taking big bets on Dogecoin yeah. to the moon. It's it's gonna as long as anybody wants to trade crypto, my exchange will be the best. They'll trade with me. The valuation will go up and up and up. And maybe in the long run, I could make you know a hundred billion dollars. And so it's better than running some sort of short-term con right now. And what I and so I found this convincing. Um, and what I did not realize was that the exchange was the con. He was running like a long-term con. That was actually how he was going to get to the $100 billion. Um, so, so do you want to and, explain that in a little bit more detail? How was he? How do you believe he was running the longer-term con? Um, so I will, uh, this is how it worked. So when he started off, he had a hedge fund called Alameda Research. It had at least some success arbitraging crypto prices, which really varied across markets, especially in the early years. That was the the kimchi arbitrage to begin with? Yes. I don't know if the the kimchi one with with Korea was very tempting but difficult. And he uh, he had some success with Japan. It was... um, I mean, it's like a Hall of Fame trade. And by all accounts, it really happened um, where Bitcoin was trading um, 10% rich in in Japan compared to the US. And, you know, Bitcoin moves electronically. So you wouldn't think this would persist. But the problem was that it was very hard to get uh, to to handle the the fiat currency part. And yes. he came up with these like really elaborate uh, procedures to get the money back and forth between the two countries, which were like, probably involved some like light bank fraud. Um, yeah, there, it seems in your book, there was a little bit of gray area about who was signing what off where really to allow that exchange to be moved. Yes, so he really made money on that. He had this hedge fund. There's questions about how successful the hedge fund was afterwards uh, because that arbitrage didn't persist. And then uh, he started the exchange. So with an exchange, you have customers who are sending you money. And he, then they are trading crypto on your exchange, but the only evidence they have that your their money is there is they log into the exchange and they look at the at the numbers. So it later it came out at the trial that pretty early on um Alameda Research the affiliated hedge fund was treating the money the customer sent to the exchange as sort of like um just sort of a pot of gold that they could yeah. dip into and gamble with like this did this wasn't like only at the end pretty early on they started doing that and then um there was this one this one fraud that they did that I feel like didn't get enough attention. Um, at one point, so 
part of the appeal of the exchange to the venture capitalists was like, this is a great exchange, great technology, better than the other exchanges, super safe. And, um, and you're not you're not taking any risk on a specific coin. You are there as the conduit in the middle of the exchange taking a commission either way. Yeah. So it's very important for the exchange's numbers to look good. Like the bulk of his wealth depends on, I mean, he was making money two ways. One is like stealing the customer money and gambling it on Dogecoin, which was working great for a while. And then the other one was telling everybody I've got this really great exchange. And at one point, a trader exploited the exchange and the exchange ended up taking like almost a billion dollar hit on this coin called mobile coin. And if they were being honest, they would have reported a loss. Mm-hmm. And this would have made it very hard to continue raising money at ever greater valuations. However, since they had this sort of hedge fund, slush fund that could dip into the customer money, they were like, you know what? And, and no, the hedge fund didn't report results to anyone. So they were like, actually the hedge fund lost that billion dollars. The yeah. exchange's track record is still perfect. Um, yeah. And so like, this is where the Sam Bankman Freed apologists, I think, uh, have I, I, where I, I don't know how you how you keep making excuses for him because even like that one fraud is a very very bad fraud. Of course. That, yes, and they that is like one of like twenty similar sized frauds that they did. So basically, um, the long con was make this exchange look really, really good and shift money around between these two entities, which is not permitted, um, just however we think it's most advantageous. And in a weird way, like sometimes I ask myself, what did they think was going to happen? How was this ever going to work out? And I think the answer is that even though he would tell me, he would tell everybody, I'm not the two to the moon guy. I'm not gambling on crypto. I think he was kind of gambling on just crypto continuing to go up so that he could keep this rolling. And maybe um, if he made enough money, he could even out the books sometime, which um, is starting. I mean, now we're getting into something that's pretty complicated, but, um, you know, spoiler alert, like FTX eventually went bankrupt and now... um, now the bankruptcy estate is trying to recover money for the customers. Yes. Um, and they've had a lot of success. And Sam had made some crazy gambles that did work out. Yeah. And so I think this is true of like a lot of scams, but there's an argument that if just like everyone closed their eyes and that and kept this rolling and crypto went up and up and up, maybe they could have gotten away with it. Um, and I, I, one of the things they, they really were advocating for uh, on the charitable side, they're very into, uh, the, the risk of like an AI apocalypse, yeah, like a Terminator scenario. And I, I, you know, when, when the killer robots are, are taking us all over and, you know, we're turning us into their slaves. Maybe we'll wish that we didn't uh, 
We didn't catch uh, Sam Bankman's Fried's fraud. Maybe, <laughs> maybe so. Or, or he might be the instigator in generating those said robots. Oh, that's true. That's true. I mean, yes, his risk management uh, leaves something to be desired. So I'm not sure we want him to be our AI overlord no, either. I, th I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. And then in your book, there are some other incredible characters. The one that I was really drawn to was the uh, the co-creator of Inspector Gadget. Now, maybe that's just showing my age. But how does how does a, a Hollywood or, or television creator come to own a bank in the Bahamas? Um. So... You're speaking about one of my, the one of my favorite people I met during the reporting of this book, and I was trying to answer this tether question, and I could find one bank that would say yes, we do have a lot of this yeah. money for tether, and it's called Deltec Bank, and it, the chairman is Jean Chalapin, the co-creator of Inspector Gadget, and when Amazing. you say, um, like my assumption would be that. You know, he was the producer. He's like a money guy. Yeah. You know, he he didn't really create Inspector Gadget. But I looked into it and like, no, he like, maybe he didn't draw the cartoons, but he's a creative guy who helped come up with this idea with his partners and uh, many other um, super successful cartoons. He had like a rival, one of the top animation studios. He, and... Uh, I'm not doing justice to his story, but possibly dropped out of high school to start this. He's at mm -hmm. a very early age, and he sold it and became inc incredibly rich. He bought a castle, like a, a very big castle in either France or Switzerland. It, it, um, I think in your book you highlight it was used for one of the villains, the Bond villains in a recent Bond film. That that was his mansion in the Bahamas. Oh, that's his mansion and in the Bahamas. Yes. Okay. Yes, and he, um, if you've seen Casino Royale, there's a famous scene where Daniel Craig comes out of the ocean yes. looking like glistening and very buff. And the just like, just back, like you and I, just like you and I yes, do. Yeah, yes, um, and the villain's wife is riding a horse on the beach and kind of looks at, gives him like a intriguing look. And in the background, you see the, the villain's house. And that was previously Jean Chalapin's house. He also um, piloted his own plane. Um, he, you know, he seems like a character from a Bond movie. Yeah. And so I, I sent him a message and arranged an interview at his, at Del Tech's office in the Bahamas. And I get there and let's say, uh, poster, a hand-drawn poster of Inspector Gadget on the door to celebrate an anniversary he'd been given. Um, and he he makes himself a cup of tea. He's, at this point, he's about he's about 70. He's got a mop of red hair. He wears glasses. Very sweet um, guy. And he, but at, just as we're sitting down, he pulls this book off his shelf. And he says, it's called Misplaced Trust. And it's about like financial fraud or something. And he says to me, ah, the strange things people do for money. And I'm like, he, he was full of, he always, he always knew just what to say. Um, yeah. At another point, he, 
he's introducing me to the mysterious CEO of Tether. And yes. Yes. as we're uh as we're standing around, he's like, if you screw this up, I'll kill you. Um actually like he's not killing anybody. He's very nice. But uh but but great line. Um and I always wondered so and he told me, he was like, listen, I hold a lot of money for Tether, but not all the money. I can't vouch for the rest of the money. You know, I've only I've got I think he had like 15 billion of the 50 or something like that. So um and he uh he and he had moved to a different house in the Bahamas and Giancarlo oh I haven't introduced Giancarlo, the CFO of Tether, the power behind the throne, a former plastic surgeon from Italy. Yes. Um yes. he had bought the house next door. They're neighbors. And How convenient. Uh, Yes, and and John, John told me that, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but in the back of my mind, I was always thinking because I'm trying to talk with John to get information about Tether. We became pretty friendly and would see each other in New York sometimes. I had to go to the Bahamas quite a few times for the books. For must me. have been a hard, must have been a hard yes. life. Yes, um, leave my wife at home with my three children. Yeah. Um, the, but. I always, I'm trying to get John to maybe tell me a little info about Tether, but then I'm wondering, is he trying to get me to tell him what I'm working on so that he can go report back to his neighbor? I mean, it didn't seem like a crazy uh, suspicion, but, you know, maybe that added a little bit of excitement to our conversations. Um, and I love talking to him about his, every time you talk to him, you'd hear some new crazy story from his career. Like he had tried to run this very ambitious uh like theme park in Paris. Uh, he'd had another theme park idea that was near the Great Wall of China. Um, and he had he's still working on all sorts of um, out there ideas, which is why he said he was more open to taking on these crypto customers at his bank. I mean, he, he really seems like an incredible character. Did, did you, and we'll get onto the darker side of crypto in a minute, but did you actually feel ever feel threatened do people actually know what you were doing at the time when you were when you were doing your your investigations? Was there any was there a, was there certainly Miami or at, at the conferences? Was there was there ever a sort of a, a a dirty undercurrent or vibe? Um. Well, I think I know you know where you're headed with the dark side, and I think that would be the only time that I felt uh, you know, a bit a bit unsafe with the. With the crypto guys, um, they in general were, you know, a little skeptical of a reporter. There's a big question of like, hey, reporter, are you a crypto guy too, or are you yeah. a hater? You know, what yeah. what's your what's in your portfolio? Yeah. And but, um, but in general, a lot of people like Sam, or um, another character from the book, Alex Mashinsky, who yes. turns out yeah. to have been running a giant fraud himself. Yeah. Um, we're pretty open to talking to reporters. And when I came in, um, a lot of these guys had been getting attention from this overwhelmingly positive attention from the kind of crypto press. There's like a whole industry of crypto newsletters. So when I get to the conference, it's like nine people from like, blockchain weekly yeah. Yeah. and like so which 
no shame in that. I used to work for Derivatives Week doing the equity yeah. derivatives. But um, and then there's me. So I think they might have been more excited to get to meet someone from like a bigger outlet like Bloomberg. Yes. Yeah. And but also maybe still expect the this new reporter will be just as nice as the other reporters. And then let's let's move on to that sort of darker side in your book about about crypto. Um, how did you go about sort of investigating that? So, as I'm looking into Tether, I start to hear that one thing that might be going on, in addition to the mystery about the money, is that Tether is becoming very popular with criminals. And I see there's this one case where the U.S. authorities arrested a Russian money launderer who had this crazy scheme that involved like Venezuelan oil and like sketchy weapons. And there was some big deal. And one of the two of the guys in this deal are talking to each other. And one of them says, uh, hey, listen, for, you know, to send me the $10 million, use this thing called Tether. It's so cool. It's so it's easy. You just like zap the money over and you know, it says quick as email. You should give it a try. Everybody's doing it. Um, and I think, wow, maybe this could account for some of Tether's popularity. Because I was wondering, yeah. like, why do people use it? It seems so weird. And it seems like even if there's no proof that there's something big shady thing going on, there's certainly enough reason to be worried that, like, I wouldn't keep my money there. Um, so I start to think, okay, what about these illicit uses? Could that explain wh why people are yeah. using it? And then I get a, I'm not sure like how to investigate this exactly, but I get this text message and it's one of these wrong number text messages yeah. that, that we all get. And it's just like, Hey David, um, how are you doing? Did you get the milk on your way home? Something like that. And I'm like, oh, I've heard about these. Now's my chance. I'm going to play along and let's see if this scam involves Tether and maybe you can figure out how it works. And so I start, I write back and say, hey, I'm not David. My name's Zeke. Um, and the person says, oh, well, I'm sorry about the wrong number. Uh, my name is Vicky Ho and maybe we can be friends. Yeah. And this person, whoever they are, start sending me pictures and they're an attractive young Asian woman who now starts telling me like sending me messages like good night every night and good morning every morning she sends me pictures of herself always doing kind of fancy things like golfing or driving her Ferrari and she's just painting this picture that she's a woman who is single maybe divorced and she lives this life of leisure that's funded by her skills at Bitcoin trading, she eventually says. And I'm thinking, please hurry up and try to scam me because I want to see how this works. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, it takes her, she builds it up for a while. She wants to get some rapport. Eventually, I tell her, I'm like, listen, Vicky, I am desperate to get $150,000 so I can buy this new Tesla. Please teach me your secrets. And she's like, okay. So she tells me, I need to go on, I need to download like a crypto exchange app, a normal one, like 
Crypto.com or Coinbase or something that's available in the US. And I'm supposed to acquire some tethers. And I'm like, oh, wow, tethers. All right, let's see how I like where this is going. And then, so I do that. And then she's like, all right, now download this other exchange. This is where the real good stuff happens. It's called like XBT or something like that. And I download this other app. It looks like kind of like a very, very poorly made exchange app. It's, but like, whatever. It's just like another crypto exchange app. And she gives me, the app has customer service and it, they give me instructions for how to deposit. In the exchange app, this is like, this is just how crypto works. They're like, here's a 32 character string of random yeah. letters and numbers. That's their Ethereum address. And I can just use my regular app to zap them my tethers and then I'm in. So I do that and Vicky starts giving me, she starts pressuring me to send more money. And then um, I, I'd i sort of gotten what I wanted. And so I tell her the truth about what I'm up to and she disappears. Mm-hmm. But now this is the like really dark part, which is that it turns out that the people running these scams are they're run by like Chinese gangsters and these gangsters have set up these scam compounds in Southeast Asia often in Cambodia where they have these office towers they're just filled with people sending these spam messages all day and all night trying to trick people into sending them crypto and the the people who are sending the messages themselves are often victims yeah and what happens is like the bad guys will post job ads saying hey come work in customer service at my casino and then when the workers show up they're trapped they're forced to scam they if they don't meet quotas they'll be beaten tortured with electric shocks or even so i started looking into this and talking to people who'd escaped from these compounds like literally you have to pay a ransom to get out. They'll sell you to other compounds. It's truly horrible. And I mean, part, parts of your book were quite harrowing about it, I thought. Yes, I mean, I'd never heard of something so evil. And I go to, um, I teamed up with some reporters who'd done amazing work in Cambodia on this topic. And I went there and I don't know if if we have time for the whole story, but one thing that was just doesn't prove anything, but was like very surprising and seemed like a sign to me was, you know, I saw very little sign in my years investigating crypto of crypto actually being used in the real world. And then I was, uh, I was taking a bus from uh, Ho Chi Minh City to Phnom Penh in Cambodia we get to the border and I got out at Bavet, which is a casino town on the border of Cambodia and Vietnam that's known to be a center of a lot of these scam compounds. And I was standing, I walked down this dusty highway to the first casino where I'd seen videos of workers mm-hmm. escaping from this place and heard horrible things. Right there in the parking lot, there was a money exchange booth and the guy, it was advertising that you could trade tethers for cash right there. And I'm like, 
This is like the the first time I'd seen yes. tethers yeah. in the real world, and it's at like this site of this like human trafficking hub, yeah. and I'm like, this is just like a bad sign. And I realized that this terrible scam, first of all, huge sums of money are being moved. The UN actually estimated recently 200,000 people have been trapped in these scam compounds. And wow. in my opinion, crypto is what makes this possible because you can get your victim to send you money, big sums, instantly around the world with no recourse yeah. and with no um, no need to exchange identifying information. So there's just very little for, in the event that like somehow the authorities get involved, there's very little clues for them to to go on. And I heard this from a, a veteran human trafficking investigator in Taiwan who had traveled to Cambodia to work some of these cases. He was like, the criminals are using crypto and it's making my job very difficult. It was a very needed part of your book, actually, I think. It was good, it was good to to uncover, I think, the, the darker side of, of the crypto story. Well, and I think, like, at the end, I'm when I was back, I was back with Sam Bankman Freed just before he got arrested. Yeah. And I, uh, this is, like, I wanted to ask all these crypto guys, especially him, like, because I've heard of some of these bad guys in this scam using his exchange to try yeah. and move some of the money. Yeah. And I'm like, what do you think about that? What are you doing to stop it? And he's just like, oh, that does sound really bad. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, to be fair to him, like he had he had his own problems going on at the time of that conversation. But I guess that's true. Uh, and then and then another part of the book, which we might sort of move on to a bit of a, a lighter note now, is you owned a board ape and a, a NFT. Yes. So this at one point earlier in my investigation, I the crypto guys kind of got to me because they had been telling me, did they suck you, you don't in? know you're well, it wasn't like I thought I was going to get rich, but they were just like, if you don't really give this a try, how can you yeah. how can you judge it? And yeah. I thought, you know what? And the, the person who really was teasing me about this the hardest, they wouldn't let me into this party for something called Solana monkey business. And these were NFTs, digital cartoons of like monkeys that looked like they could be in a Mario game and they cost $25,000 each. So I was like, oh man, I really don't want to pay $25,000 to go to this uh, Mar you know, Solana monkey business party but like maybe this guy has a point. Maybe I should try it out. And I realized like if I was going to try it out, I know enough about this that I, I don't want some knockoff. And the I want the real thing. And at that time, the most kind of legit NFT was called the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Yeah. These were like, these are instead of pixelated Mario type monkeys, these were like cartoonish monkeys with like hats and uh, other accessories and this company had made 10,000 of them that all looked like very similar and the price had taken off like the cheapest one at the time was $500,000 and celebrities had them there's this great uh episode of the Jimmy Fallon show yes. just bizarre yeah. 
where him and Paris Hilton are showing off their bored apes. And Bieber got one. Um, the Chainsmokers. Uh, Snoop, Eminem. So it was one of those... Uh, it definitely felt like one of those Emperor's New Clothes situations where like everyone's like, yeah, these apes are so cool. Like nobody... Um, and meanwhile, like in the main... I don't want to act like I... I'm the only one who saw through this. Like most people were like, yeah. this is stupid. Yeah. But uh, in the crypto world, everyone was was pretending, you know, these were like the future of entertainment. Um, so I decided I was there was a big party coming up, a week long party. You'd only go if you had a board ape. I decided 500 grand was too much, but it turned out the apes um, in the ape world, the apes had all at one point in their story, they drank some radioactive potion. And then this created a second set of 10,000 apes, which made like another 100 million for the company or something crazy. Uh, these guys were just printing money. It's an amazing business. Um, yeah. But the mutant apes the were more affordable. The cheapest one was 40 grand. Um, so I decided to, I had an advance for the book and I decided to, uh, you know, I thought I was like, listen, I'm to myself. I'm like, the party's a week long. It's not. What are the odds that ape prices crash during that week? And yeah. I could, you can log on, you can. It's all on the blockchain, so you can look. Yeah. People do buy and sell these apes. Like every day, people are selling them. So I'm thinking, I'll buy one for forty grand. I'll sell it in a week. What's the worst that can happen? Um, but uh, the that was like my intellectual side yeah but once i actually acquired it i was just like oh no did you have no massive, will, uh, yeah massive buyer's remorse well i was just like yes i well i was like no one will ever be stupid enough to buy this for me i i'm gonna go down as history as the last person who ever bought one of these dumb apes um There's, yes it's the you're the fool in the greater fool, fool theory yes and I mean, I had told my wife this plan and how I wasn't going to lose all the money. And I'm just like, oh, everyone's talking about getting hacked. There were rumors that um, there was a billboard in Times Square. I don't know if this is true or not, but people were talking about it. They said there was a billboard in Times Square that said if you, it was an ad for a service where they it was for hot girls that wanted to date people who owned Bored Apes. Yeah. And But it was a trick. And if you scan the QR code, your ape was gone. Oh, um, interesting. Yes. I was hearing about all sorts of stuff. And then during the time that I had the ape, this guy came out with this theory that the bored apes were actually Nazis. And he was getting a lot of traction with this online. So I was like, oh, no, my ape is going to be devalued by this Nazi theory. Uh, it was horrible. But I did. Um, I mean, I saw Snoop and Eminem. I got to meet uh, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. And. You'll have to read the book if you want to find out if I lost the uh, that, all the cash. That, that's <laughs> a very good point. That's a very good point. And before we come on to our closing questions, I mean, I just got one question, really. Has crypto had its time or do you think, I mean, has, have, the, have the sort of the charlatans ruined it for everyone else? What, what do you think? Is, is, have you found a use case for crypto yet? So no is my answer. And like people can tell you all sorts of use cases that sound perfectly plausible and like they might be good. But I would just say, like, come back when it works, you know, yeah. like 
I I don't need to be the early adopter. When they have some sort of consumer product that that is appealing to regular people, we'll hear about it. Like I nobody had to, you know, throw a party to sell Facebook to me. Like everybody yeah. at my college wanted to use Facebook, and so I think that uh, a, a lot of smart people are working really hard in crypto, and you know I hope they they come up with something cool. But I spent a couple years looking to this whole world. And what I found was like a ton of the craziest scammers that I've met in my career. So yes, I'm very down on the industry. And now bafflingly, the prices are going up again and people are spreading this narrative again that like mass adoption is around the corner. The Wall Street's gonna get in on it. And what I say to people who are uh, um, who are are thinking that is, you know what, try out crypto for yourself because don't just go buy it on Coinbase. Like crypto, if you go buy crypto on like uh, a trading app, that's not really trying crypto. That's just putting your money in crypto. To try crypto, like get a crypto wallet, try it out, try to buy, there's cheaper things than Bored Apes, buy an NFT and you will see that it is horrible that this product holds no appeal for any regular person. There's a reason why it hasn't taken off. And um, I, I mean, I by the time, one thing that, that, I, that I did without, I traveled the world for this book, right? I went to so many countries and I think I, I almost everywhere I went, my tap and pay visa card worked fine. Yeah, you know, exactly. And I got yeah. credit, I got, I got rewards points. And it's yep. got no foreign transaction fees. So like crypto, that's what you're competing with. You know, like you're you have to come up with something that makes me switch from my from my Visa card. And then just one final point before we get to the last questions. Obviously, your book came out just after Michael or at the same time as Michael Lewis's book on on SBF. I mean, it must have been quite interesting to go head to head with Michael Lewis. Yes. Um so I became, since we were both hanging out with SBF, I learned pretty early on that the most famous writer in the nonfiction world was also interested in the same guy as me, which was very bad news. But I tried to, uh, I had a couple of strategies. One was just wishful thinking. I was like, maybe he's just hanging out with him for no reason. Might yeah. not be writing a book. I don't know. Maybe he'll write a book in five years. Um and then or, or the just other or one, just go to, or just go to the Super Bowl with him. Yes, um, maybe he's gonna make a movie. Cut out the book part. Yeah. Um, so then the other one, but eventually I came to this idea, and I I love books. Like for me, it's a huge deal. It's my first book that I'm finally gonna do it, and I'm like, you cannot worry about this other guy. You just yeah. have to do what you think is best for this book, and you. Um, just do your best and do something that you're going to be proud of. And, you know, I fully figured his book would be pretty good. So I'm like, you, you better, uh, you better come up with even, even better jokes about crypto than, than Michael Lewis is going to come up with. Um, So for me, it was, uh, it was kind of a good motivator knowing that the, that there was somebody else um, who I really admired yeah. Um, working working on this too. 
Now that makes a lot of sense, right? See, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. So we'll take one at a time if that's okay. Your greatest inspiration or mentor, please. Um. So there's a person who uh, really inspires me um, is my mom. Uh -huh. And she's a she's an English teacher, and she's recently she recently retired, um, outside she outside Boston. It's, but she had a long a long career um, teaching high school English, and she just uh, always you could imagine get kind of getting kind of burned out. I mean. There's books that she taught like year after year. Yes. And yeah. but every year, first of all, she would be excited about the book again. She would notice new things and she was always trying to come up with new ways to engage her students and ways to uh, keep herself interested. And she never let herself just be like, this is boring yeah. or I'm not going to keep trying to improve. Honestly, I don't really know why she retired because she's still even when she retired, she still seemed to be, you know, super engaged at at her work and at uh, at improving improving at it and something that I aspire to myself. Amazing. And then a book, and there can be more than one, but that's inspired you as well. Um, one book that really inspired me was uh David Grant's The Lost City of Z. Um he's um a New Yorker writer. He's written a bunch of really popular books, but The Lost City of Z was really fun. He told the story of this Victorian era explorer who was looking for a lost city in the Amazon, but there was also like a second plot where David Grant the author who's kind of like describes himself as like a you know, schlubby guy who's not very adventurous goes to the Amazon himself to try to to find this lost city. Um, and I just thought it was such a great read. I To me, there's no greater form of entertainment than these, you know, thrilling true stories. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so books like that or... Um, John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, which I read when, yep. when I was a teenager. I've just always aspired to um, write something like that, but it wasn't until I found the crypto world that I felt like I really had a story that was good enough to tell. I mean, your story is great in your book, as I keep saying. It's a really fun and riveting read, actually. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career? I would say um, everything seems so important when you're young and like very high stakes. And I think for me, that made me kind of cautious with my career. And I, th I would say, you know, when you're in your 20s and you don't uh, you're not you don't have a before you have a kids or you get yep. married or whatever you have fewer responsibilities you're actually in a cool place where you can take a lot of risks and try something new and if it doesn't work out uh even if like several things don't work out it's not really the end of the world 
Um, but, you know, but it seems like really scary. And it seems like it's very, at least to me, it always seemed important that I like stay on track and yeah. keep up with my peers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I really admire people who didn't worry about that and who uh, who tried something crazy. And, you know, I before I started at Bloomberg, I took like, it wasn't even that long. I took like a week off to go hiking. And I thought, this was pretty cool. You should do this like whenever you get a new job. Cut to like 13 years later, yeah. never got a new job, have never yeah. taken a week off to go hiking again. Exactly. <laughs> so it's take those opportunities, I guess, and the yeah. chance, and the chance. Zeke, this has been absolutely magical. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really great fun. Oh, same. Thank you, Nick. Really nice to I, talk with you. And just finally, Justin, I forgot to ask my last my last question, actually, which is how can listeners get in touch with you? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Zeke Fox and my DMs are open. Um, so that's like a good way to, to find me and keep up with what I'm doing. Brilliant. Zeke, it's been fantastic. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.